This is the Word Fitly Spoken podcast. What is a Word Fitly Spoken? By words about reading the Scriptures, about preaching the Scriptures, and about the mission on which the Scriptures send all of us, we here at A Word Fitly Spoken aim to give you, the servant of Christ, more and more always from the fullness the Lord has given us in His Holy Word. Today we're going to talk about the book of Nehemiah. And with us today are Pastors David Appled and Pastor Zelwyn Heidi. Hello, guys. Good to be here, Willie, as always. Um, it should be an interesting topic today, and I'm looking forward to talking over it uh, with David. Certainly. Yeah, excited to be on with you guys. Yeah, and I'm sure it won't be the, won't be the last time that we see either of you guys. So, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourselves? You know, uh, last time we forgot to do uh, proper introductions here. So we're just two guys gassing off. Nobody knows anything about us. So, uh, David, why don't you go ahead and introduce yourself? That's the way. That's the way we want it, isn't it? We're just voices. <laughs> um, yeah, I'm a pastor in Western Kentucky. I'm in Paducah, Kentucky. Um, I've been here three and a half years. Uh, before that, uh, I was at the seminary, Fort Wayne uh, Concordia Theological Seminary in Fort Wayne. Uh, before that. I was in Michigan. My father is a pastor too, so I grew up kind of moving around a little bit, not as much as some uh, clergy families, but we moved around a little bit, but always within Michigan. Great. Zelwyn? Well, I'm, as you mentioned last time, from North Dakota. I live in western North Dakota, and I serve three churches at uh, Grassy Butte, North Dakota, uh, Watford City, which is actually a, a mission plant, as well as uh, Belfield, which was recently added into our parish. I'm from this region and actually a classmate of David. I, mean, I can't remember, if Willie, if you graduated with us or not. So, <laughs> But uh, we, I'm looking forward to the episode, and it, and it should be a, a good time. What about you, Willie? Well, I'm Willie Grills. I am a pastor of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod, like the rest of us. And I'm in western Iowa. I'm the pastor of a Spanish mission. I, too, graduated from, from Concordia Theological Seminary. I didn't graduate with you guys. However, we did overlap a bit there. And that's probably the genesis of this podcast, really, if we think about it. Um, so, yeah, Western Iowa, Kentucky, Western North Dakota, some various regions represented. That's what we like. Anything else, guys, before we begin? No, I think I, I'm good. David? Good, David? Yeah, let's go. Let's go. Good. We don't have to get into favorite colors or spirit animals or anything like that. <laughs> Move on. All right. So Nehemiah, now we're thinking, all right, you guys, how are we going to do this? Are we going to do a, a full exegesis of this really complicated and wonderful book in one episode? The answer is no. So just because this episode is going to be titled Episode 2, Nehemiah, doesn't mean that it's a one and done. We'll come back. We'll do more in-depth exegesis in the future. Today is an overview of the major themes of Nehemiah, uh, specifically what they mean in the context uh, in which they were written, and also their relevance for us today as beneficiaries of God's Word. So let's just begin. Who is Nehemiah? Or what is the right, book so, of Nehemiah? Yeah, I mean, the book, let me just kind of say something about the book generally speaking. The book, it's important to to know the context. I mean, I think I don't think I'm um, 
saying anything against our listeners, but I don't think the book of Nehemiah is a particularly well-known book by people uh, in our pews and also even in the pulpits. It just doesn't get, I, I don't know if it ever comes up in the lectionary, to be honest. Um, so it just doesn't. Verses with featuring Nehemiah. Yeah, yeah. There's some. There's actually some really good ones in here, but uh, yeah, it doesn't get used much. So we're we're talking about the the era of the return, kind of the close of the Old Testament. Uh, it's at the end. The people have gone into exile. They've come back, but are they really back? That's the way I kind of like to put it. We're back, but are we really back? And uh, so Nehemiah comes in at the very end of the Old Testament. Uh, he is sent from. Um, I think he's in Susa, right? Yes. I he's think. sent from Susa back to Jerusalem in the, the traditional year is um, 445 BC. And, uh, but before that, he's a, he's a servant of the king of Persia. And uh, the king of Persia at the time is Artaxerxes. I don't know if either of you are experts on the Persian Empire, but um, that's just really not described very much in the Bible. What what the peoples of Israel's existence was like under the Persians. We just get this brief note that he's the cupbearer to the king of Persia. Well, if I can jump in real quick, um, it's worth noting that the Persian Empire historically were the ones who came in and conquered uh, the Babylonians, and so. The Babylonians are actually the ones who carried them away into exile and took them over into their various cities over in Assyria. Uh, but then the Persians under uh, Cyrus the Great uh, came in and conquered Babylon. And then as kind of Cyrus's, um, I don't know what you want to call it, uh, uh, getting on everybody's good side program. <laughs> um, yeah. he's, he's the one that is doing all this so that he can... Uh, get on the good side of all of his new subjects. And so that's kind of the historical background of that. And just uh, a little bit more, guys, um, about the exile proper, uh, what it was and what it meant for the people of Israel. Sure. Uh, so the exile, like like Zelwyn was saying there, is, is actually done by the Babylonians. And uh, this comes at the end of a long period of um, ever-increasing idolatry. Is that fair to say? Um, oh, absolutely. So ever since ever since Solomon, really, the, the idolatry sort of slowly crept in and a little yeast leavens the whole lump. You do get some in the kingdom, of, in the southern kingdom anyways. You do have a few good kings who carry out reforms to some extent. I'm thinking of Josiah and Hezekiah, especially before him. But it, it becomes clear as you read, say, First and Second Kings, First and Second Chronicles, it becomes clear that the people's reforms aren't actually going to get the job done. And so finally, the Lord has to discipline his people in order to wake them up, really. Right. I mean, sometimes you have to break a thing in order to rebuild it. And that's really what happens. So it's a certainly the judgment of the Lord. But but I think there is something deeper, too, that he's preparing for the next phase of um I don't know what to, how to, how exactly to say it, but the next step in his in his mission to bring his son into the world. Oh sure, I mean if if we think about it, if the uh, Israelites had never gone into exile, um, you you wouldn't have things set up in the way that it would, so that the mission would go out to the Gentiles. Uh, right, right. 
but yeah, so I mean, you're looking at God, even though he's using this as a way of disciplining, like you say, he is using this as a way of also moving forward. So yeah, his providential hand is certainly seen here as it is throughout all of scripture. Um, but it's important to remember just how significant the exile is, because we have to understand how significant this kingdom or this land is to the Jews and what they've done with it, and then how utterly everything they have is now destroyed and gone, and they're removed from this. The promise is essentially taken away from them as covenant breakers, which is a theme that we're going to see in Nehemiah, or the restoration of the covenant. Right. And uh, I mean, so Nehemiah, I mentioned before, some of the, the dates, they'll be hard to if you don't have it in a graphic form, you know, a timeline is really helpful for this. Uh, I'm, I'm not going to mention all the the rulers, but the big dates to keep in mind here are, uh, I don't know, 587, 586. That's the date of Nebuchadnezzar's uh, destruction of Jerusalem, the destruction of the temple. And that seems to be just the policy is burn everything, right? So rip it all down, burn it all down scorched earth kind of policy that the Babylonians carry out. And I think Zelwyn mentioned Cyrus, um, the Persians come in and wipe out the Babylonians in 539, I think is the date. And then 537, Cyrus says, hey, everyone can go home. Just uh, when you do go back, make sure you pray for me, right? So that's his sort of, uh, he's trying to cover all his bases spiritually. So the Jews can go back to Jerusalem they can rebuild their temple and they just need to make sure they're praying for their patron, the emperor uh, of Persia. But then uh, the temple is not actually fully rebuilt until 517. And it's finally rededicated in 517. And, and then you still have a long period before Nehemiah comes on the scene. What is that? 60, 70 years before, um, before Nehemiah actually makes it to Jerusalem. Yeah. Well, let's dig into the book a little bit then. You guys ready? Let's do it. All right. So an interesting opener here is it really begins with Nehemiah's intercession and Nehemiah's grief on behalf of his people. Right. So one, one of the things worth noting about Nehemiah, he never would have lived in Jerusalem prior to this. Right? It wasn't like he was born in Jerusalem. The, the exile um, was long before him, um, but he's still, he's, I, I take it that he's born in exile. He's born somewhere in the Persian Empire and has no personal remembrance of Jerusalem. And yet the book opens with him inquiring about the city of Jerusalem and the welfare of, the, of, of his people. So even though he's born as an exile, he still identifies with this land, with this people uh, who he has never seen, right? And he's deeply grieved about it too. I mean, um, he's going in to serve the king and and was at the beginning of chapter two, and he's <laughs> practically crying uh, all through his grief, which if anything shows how much this land uh, meant to the Jews. Yeah, the and, and you get a note even before that, right? He, how does he find out about this? Well, it's not in the local papers. Um, so he asks 
people who are coming back from Jerusalem. Hey, how's it going there? And he gets this report. Uh, you know, it's not going well. The, the walls are in shambles. Uh, there's no defense for the city. The people are exposed to, uh, to just really whatever is going on there. And there's a note, I think it's in uh, one, yeah, chapter one, that sort of sets off this prayer of Nehemiah that he uh, began fasting and praying. And uh, you get this sense that it's not just a one-time thing for him. Right. So sometimes you get bad news and okay, you process it and you might be sad about it, but you move on. Right. Your your dog. I, I don't want to offend you, Zelwyn, but let's say <laughs> your dog dies, right? I know that pains you deeply and you're deeply grieved, but probably you're over it after a you know period of what, a week. Yeah, maybe. you get another um, dog. Yeah, I understand. So <laughs> Right. So so Nehemiah is deeply grieved and his mourning and fasting is not just sort of perfunctory, I guess you'd say, right? It's, it goes on and it becomes visible, right? Because he doesn't, uh, he doesn't go into the king of Persia and say, Hey, here's how I'm feeling today, right? That's not the way things go in the Persian empire. You, you keep it to yourself until you're asked. And if you come into the king's presence and he doesn't like the way you look today, yeah, you, your life might be in danger. Um, so his his mourning is ongoing, and it's it becomes uh, evident to the king of Persia something's off with Nehemiah. Yes, yeah, so so yes, Nehemiah is fasting and weeping and praying in verse uh, chapter one, verses four, or verse four is where uh, he mentions him sitting down, weeping and mourning, fasting and praying, and then we have the prayer in uh, five and following, which leads. Uh, through his conversation with the king, and then him essentially surveying the damages to the wall, uh, which is sort of the first work um, that he has to do. Are the walls important? What's significant about the survey of the wall? Well, the uh, right, the walls, I, there's not a lot of discussion of the walls in Scripture. Uh, I don't remember there being anything. I'm certainly open to correction on this, but I don't remember there being much discussion about um, the building of the walls. You know, there's lots of detail when it comes to the tabernacle and then again with the temple and the measurements and everything. So when we look at the walls of Jerusalem, uh, you're kind of just sort of using, what would you say, common sense here, right? Uh, to think about the purpose of the walls and the importance for the people of, of Jerusalem. Um, obviously, there's a, a defensive element here. They're, they're uh, in need of walls to protect them from whoever is going to come against them, whether it's another nation, whether it's some kind of um, military threat or just uh, uh, marauders. I, I don't know exactly what else to say about the walls. Zelwyn, go ahead. <laughs> Throw it all on me. Yeah, yeah uh, take it away. Well, you do get, I if I remember correctly, you do have references here and there throughout Kings and Chronicles of, you know, mentions of the walls. But, um, but yeah, like you say, it's not, it's not something that ever has as much detail as the temple or anything like that. Um, but I, but I do think it's important um, that you see in the rebuilding of the wall, uh, which begins in uh, chapter three in Nehemiah, uh, that you see that the, the return to exiles are actually starting to work together that they're actually at least laboring 
and this pro- and this work uh, together in a way that is actually going to astonish everybody. Yeah, I think yeah that brings up a good point, right? One of the the functions of a wall uh, when you're when they're talking about the rebuilding of the wall, obviously its practical purpose is the defense of the city and the people who would live within the walls of the city. But it also, I think, has to do more generally speaking with the. Um, the people's sense of themselves, right? So it has to do with the glory of the city. Uh, think of when they come into the promised land uh, back in right after the Exodus and they see Jericho and Jericho is this fortified city. And uh, there is this sense of strength and might and uh, power that goes along with a city's walls. And so when Jerusalem doesn't have these things, it's in shame and ruins. And so to rebuild the walls as it serves that um, a, a unifying function, but also it, it's the um, removal of the shame of God's people. And one other thing I'd like us to take note of before we move on into chapters or the rest of chapter two and into chapter three is we kind of have a reverse uh, Pharaoh situation here. One of the most talked about verses in scripture are in Romans and then in in um in Exodus where Pharaoh's heart is is hardened or God hardens Pharaoh's heart. Well we sort of see the opposite of it happening in chapter two uh verses seven and eight. Why is Nehemiah allowed to go? What does the Bible say? The king granted these to me as the good hand of God was upon me. So God is here working through this, uh, you know, essentially allowing Nehemiah to continue his work through his own action. Um, it's, uh, it's God's work is seen at play in Nehemiah getting permission. Yeah. The, and this is something in this whole period of exile and, uh, the return from the exile is that these foreign Kings are referred to as like, take Cyrus in the book of Isaiah. He's the servant. He's called the servant of the Lord. Right. Um, so even though they're, they, they don't acknowledge the Lord God of Israel. They don't, they don't know him. They don't call him by name. They certainly don't worship him. Um, maybe in a sort of perfunctory way, like the King of Persia here is like, oh yeah, well, you know, each nation has its own particular deity. Um, but even these guys who don't acknowledge the Lord can still be the, the servants of his will and his purposes. All right, guys, let's move on here. Uh, Nehemiah's actions to restore Jerusalem. So chapters two to six. Yeah, so you have the uh, the building of the walls, which we've kind of been talking about already. And uh, David, maybe you want to comment on uh, the opposition to the building and why that's significant. Sure. Well, even before he he undertakes to to build up the walls, as early on as um, as chapter, does it happen in chapter two? Yeah, right away in chapter two, he has he has to carry letters uh, to get back to Jerusalem from Susa. So he has permission from the king, but he has to show that, you know, hey, this is, uh, I'm authorized, right? I'm authorized by the king. And when he shows it, you get mentioned these three enemies uh, who are going to come up again and again in the book. Sanballat, the, um, is called a Horonite, and we can talk about that in a minute. Tobiah, the Ammonite, and then uh, Geshem, the Arab, are, are mentioned here as the three uh, enemies of Nehemiah. And there's obviously some political 
motivations going on with them. They are in charge to some extent of this. It's called the region beyond the river. And when Jerusalem is restored and Nehemiah is basically coming in as the new guy who's going to be running Jerusalem, the, the, he's going to be called the governor. Um, it's going to take away from Sanballat's uh, authority in that region. So he's opposed to Nehemiah and his work just on, in as a political rival, I think. But there's also uh, the deeper spiritual um, jealousy or the, or the deeper spiritual uh, antagonism on display in these three guys towards Nehemiah and towards the Jews. Yeah, the conspiracy against it is is certainly very interesting. Um, we really deal with sort of the same things. It's nothing new under the sun, right? right. Yeah, their um, their tactics in opposition are um, they have a whole a whole wealth of tactics to use, right? And in each in each case, it's very fascinating. I think is is really the right word. It's fascinating how Nehemiah opposes them, uh, how he withstands them, and this I think introduces one of the themes of the book of Nehemiah. You have this. Uh, the fear of the Lord versus the fear of um, these these opponents, right? Because they're always trying to instill fear in Nehemiah and in the people. And again and again, Nehemiah's, this comes out especially, I think, in uh, chapter six, uh, when his own life is is on the line. Um, he His fear is not of these enemies. His fear is uh, of God. And the, the fear of the Lord is what controls Nehemiah's actions and his mind. Yes, this fear of the Lord is the source of the boldness that all of the prophets throughout Scripture have. Is it worth maybe asking, and I'll throw this at you, David, um, we have the mention of uh, the Horonite and the Ammonite, and uh, what what is a Horonite for our listeners? Yeah, it, well, it's a good question, and I don't know if there's a uh, a satisfactory answer there. Whenever you hear the ites, you think of, you can sort of run through the list of the, the various Canaanite peoples. Uh, Horonites are not found there. Um, you do have a mention of a city called Beth Horon in Isaiah and Jeremiah. And uh, so one of the, one of the theories is that he is a resident or he, he comes, maybe his family comes from that city. Um, and traditionally, it's a it's in Isaiah and Jeremiah. Jeremiah, especially, it's included under the prophecy against Moab. So I would I take him to be a, a Moabite or some sort of um, descendant of Moabites. It's probably there's probably a mixture of people uh, that's taken place there. And, and don't you think that's interesting that uh, his main opponents are a Moabite, if your if your interpretation is correct, and an Ammonite. Um, these are the the kindred people of the Israelites. Um, I mean, the the descendants of Lot, right? Right. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. If you go back all the way th- through, now they're mentioned in chapter thirteen, especially for the incident. You want to call it an incident? That's sort of a <laughs> that's downplaying it. But the incident of um, of hiring this. It, uh, this soothsayer or hi- hiring a uh, a shaman to curse them, right? Uh, they hire Balaam to curse Israel and uh, the Lord turns the curse into a blessing, right? Balaam can't actually 
utter the curse. He can't even say it. He can't get it out of his mouth. Um, so that's, and you can find that in numbers, right? We we could talk a little more about that if you want, but yeah, descendants of Lot, they're the, the offspring of Lot and his daughters. So they, they have a, um, a bad, a bad origin from the get go, but then they also are opposed to Israel, um, when the people are in the wilderness wandering, um, they, they see them, the Moabites and the Ammonites see this people and they're afraid of them. And so they think, well, Hey, what can we do? Oh, we'll get Balaam to curse them. All right. We're going to step away for just a few minutes, take a break. When we come back, we'll talk about the feast of booths and covenanting. We'll be right back. If you like what you're hearing and want more, visit us at wordfitlyspoken.org. There you'll find our blog with lots of interesting articles, exegesis, sermon prep, and history. www.wordfitlyspoken.org And welcome back. Willie Grills here with David and Zelwyn talking about Nehemiah. Nehemiah is a book about restoration. The walls have been rebuilt. They're rebuilding up the kingdom. They're rebuilding the kingdom here. But what does that mean? Is it just a physical building? What does this restoration of God's will look like? And we begin with the Feast of Booths. Yeah, so the um, you you get the the first half of the book dealing with the the actual physical wall around the perimeter of the city of Jerusalem, uh, but the concern of Nehemiah runs deeper, and uh, in this he has a a partner with Ezra too. Ezra and Nehemiah are contemporaries. Uh, the books actually fit you know really perfectly together. Um, so his his goal is not just to rebuild the structure of the city. But his, he's trying to institute reforms um, to, uh, we'll put it this way, the, the, to build up the, a second wall, right? The wall of um, God's word to protect the, the hearts of God's people. Very good. And, if, and we're coming in now uh, with the Feast of Booths. So what is the Feast of Booths, David? Can you kind of give our listeners a, an overview of it? Yeah, sure. So the the big festival here that gets um, mentioned at this time is the Feast of Booths, right? It goes by other names. Sometimes it's just called the Feast. It's called the Feast of the Lord. Um, but this goes back to, uh, you can pick this up in Leviticus 23, um, but it, it's uh, in the seventh month, you, you have a number of significant days. Um, you have the first day of that month is the the blowing of the trumpets. I don't know if it's called a feast, but it's uh, the trumpets. And that's where chapter seven of Nehemiah uh, starts off. Uh, then you have the day of atonement in the seventh month, which actually gets no mention uh, in the book of Nehemiah. And uh, his focus turns to the feast of booths. And so I'm just going to read, if, if you don't mind, I'm just going to read for a second uh, what's mentioned here. Uh, as going on with the Feast of Booths. Uh, This is in chapter 8, verse 13. 
On the second day, the heads of the father's houses of all the people with the priests and the Levites came together to Ezra the scribe in order to study the words of the law. And they found it written in the law that the Lord had commanded by Moses that the people of Israel should dwell in booths during the feast of the seventh month. Um, And so I think that that indicates to us um, part of the the deeper return. I I keep saying deeper, but it's I don't mean it in sort of a hidden way here. But the, the true return of God's people is not just returning to the land and being back in that specific spot, um, but a return to God himself, which is, which means a return to his law, uh, a return to his word, as we would typically say. And it's very, yeah, it's very clearly um, spoken of in, towards the end of chapter eight, verses 17 and 18, the whole assembly of those who had returned from captivity make booths. And they said under the booths for since the day of Joshua, until that day, the sons of Israel had not done so, and there was a great gladness. Also, day by day, from the first day until the last day, he read from the book of the law of God. And they kept the feast seven days. And on the eighth day, there was a sacred assembly, according to the prescribed, um, according to the prescribed manner. So, it's very interesting that the restoration can only happen after the word of God is read. Their worship is informed by the word of God. They hear what they are to do, and yeah. then they do it. And the the feast of booths, right? That um, I think it um, it's intriguing to us, right? That they built these structures, they built these booths, and um, when you go back and look in Leviticus, you see, okay, what was the significance of this? Uh, it was to remember how the Lord had provided. Uh, for them in the wilderness, right? Even before they get to the land, uh, he takes care of them in the wilderness. And so it's a it's a celebration of the Lord's ongoing care for them, and then ultimately the gift of the land. Uh, but in Nehemiah's time, and what Nehemiah really emphasizes is this reading of the law. Everything that happens towards the end of the book, after the, the actual building of the physical walls, uh, the people are just hearing God's, they're hearing God's word every day, it seems like. And uh, it'll even mention it for a quarter of the day, they just sat there and listened to Ezra and the scribes and the Levites reading the law and giving the sense, right? Explaining what it, what it all meant. And it's, it's very interesting. They're reading the law here. This is well before the Talmud or anything like that. What are they reading? What are they hearing? Yeah, I think they're hearing um, they're hearing the books of Moses, right? That's typically the way that that we talk about it. the The first five books is probably what they're hearing. But I think they they may even be hearing more than that. Whatever books they have, I think they're they're reading. Zellwin, any comments? Well, yeah, no. I I mean, you'd mentioned already that they were reading this aloud, and this was part of the whole assembly. And I think um, there's this this beautiful image in 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 chapter eight of Nehemiah. Um, I think it starts about oh, where is it here? It starts about verse five. And Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was above all the people. And as he opened it, all the people stood. And Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered, Amen, Amen, lifting up their hands. And they bowed their heads and worshiped the Lord with their faces to the ground. Um, they, in this act of reading the word of God, 
they are worshiping the Lord and they're doing it in a very solemn and a very profound way. Um, and I guess it kind of makes us wonder, like, you know, do we take the word of God so seriously? <laughs> you know what do I mean? Do we believe it has such power? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> do we believe the Lord means what he says? What he says, go and do, you know? Yeah, this is, it, it's a great, uh, you're right. That image is is just really great of, he's not giving a sermon. He's actually just reading, right? Um, I mean, I think people, our people still have this sense of, okay, the, the sermon, right? I, I want to hear a good sermon today. Um, but how many people want to, you know, want to just hear the actual words of scripture, Um a lot of times the scriptures are the basis for the sermon. Our sermons are based on the scriptures and that's yeah, the way it we, should I be. We, I hope we could um, say it's all the time. But even just, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it should, okay. It should be all the time. Right. Um, but my, my point there is just that the act, just the, the act of reading the scripture uh, is an act of worship. And you can see the reverence of the, of these people um, that response, amen, amen, as, as just the words are read. And, and it's going to lead into chapter nine, which is a national confession of sins. Yeah, I would I would just mention one other thing: this feast of booths and the connection with the reading of God's law. This at the end of Deuteronomy, uh, in chapter thirty-one of Deuteronomy, this was prescribed um, to be done every seven years. So every seven years, it was supposed to happen that when the people gather for the feast of, bo- of booths that they would hear the reading of God's, God's law. Um, but you can hear in, uh, I think what, what you had, what we had read earlier, um, it hadn't been celebrated this way since the days of Joshua. Right. And that's not to say that it had never happened before, but I think it hadn't been celebrated with the same, uh, sense of, of deep awe and reverence for what God had what God had done for them. And there's this renewed interest in God's word and especially in his law. And you see this uh, in the rest of the book, Nehemiah's reforms. Uh, there's this interest in how God's law is directing, how God's will is is to be lived out in the lives of uh, of the inhabitants of Jerusalem and, and of God's people. And God is very specific in his law. There there aren't too many ambiguities in these readings. And yet they were neglected for so long. These people are dehydrated. They're more than parched. They're empty. And here comes God's refreshing word filling them and then cutting them to the quick, showing them their sins, but then also providing this great comfort to them, this great sense of support to them, this quickening this zeal within them. For the Lord and His Word, yeah, great word there, right? Their their zeal for God's Word. Uh, you certainly see it in uh, these individuals like Ezra and Nehemiah. God raises up these zealous leaders of the people, but but the, their zeal um, is great and can accomplish wonderful things. But it has to then also um, be passed on to the people. They have to catch that same zeal for God's Word and God's law, and the people obviously do. In, in Nehemiah here. And they do it to such a degree, it seems, that as you mentioned earlier, Willie, uh, they confess uh, their sins, and not just their own personal sins, but the sins of the whole nation. Um, even in verse 2, where it says they confess their sins and the iniquities of their fathers. That's an interesting way of putting it. What, what would you say about that, David? You mean that they 
that they sort of stand in uh, in solidarity with everything that's happened before them. They don't try to say, "Well, that was that wasn't us, right? That was that was our dad. Those were our dads. It wasn't our fault. That was our daddy." <laughs> yeah. Well, for all of our talk about um, original sin and ancestral sin, we actually forget, you know, the gravity of it, and then this idea that the punishment for the sins of the fathers are visited upon the children. Well, now you have the inverse of that. They're repenting on behalf of their fathers, repenting on behalf of their leaders and what's been done. This thinking nationally or thinking federally or covenantally is really one of the keys to understanding the people of the Old Testament. And we'll get into that a little bit more when we talk about the restoration of the covenant. But we've become so accustomed to salvation as individual, or culpability even, as individual, that our minds today cannot really comprehend, uh, without stretching a little bit, uh, the corporate nature of confession, or the corporate nature even of salvation. Yeah, and you get you get passages like in Jeremiah, for example, where, um, I can't remember the exact passage, where the... the, the the children carry a wood and the women and, and the women make cakes for the queen of heaven and, and the men are worshiping. So in other words, even though this uh, sin, even though our guilt is individual, um, you know, we are individually guilty for the sins. Um, yet there can also be this sense. There is this sense in which uh, we are sinning as a body, that we are sinning altogether as, as the nation in this case of Israel, so that um, the whole body suffers even if some of the individual members are themselves righteous. Uh, David, do you want to comment on that? Well, I, w- I would just say here, you can think back to something we mentioned uh, towards the beginning. Um, in Within the history of First and Second Kings, you do get these reform reforming kings, right? So you get Josiah and you get Hezekiah. Um, but even after their reforms, there's still the and and they're breaking down all these high places and they're they're destroying all the idols, which is great and wonderful. Um, and yet there still is this passing on of practices that are abhorrent to the Lord and that are contrary to His law. And just the the um, over time, these things pile up so much that even even at the time of Jeremiah, it's almost like they can't actually repent. I'm not saying it's impossible for them individually, but the the sheer weight of their sins has has forced them to be doing things for so long uh, that are contrary to God's word that they can't they can't see their way out of it, right? It's like a hole that you can't dig yourself out of. Or, or uh, yeah, that, and, that's a good way. And so God sends a preacher to them. In a real sense, they can't repent. They really cannot. Until they hear this word. Yeah, and, and I think it. that's, I, isn't that what the exile is? Is that, look, what Josiah couldn't do, what Hezekiah couldn't do, um, the Lord is going to do himself, right? He, he finally says, enough, right? I sent you the prophets again and again and again. I, 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 ha- I raised up these faithful kings and it's still, it, that wasn't enough. And so now I'm going to act. I'm going to to make myself known that I am the Lord, and this is how you'll know it, that I actually discipline my people. God is good in his chastisement. Right. It's a sign of his love for his people, even if they don't comprehend it at the time. 
Yeah, the Lord disciplines those whom he loves and just like our earthly fathers do. And at the time we say, ah, I don't like this, but afterwards it reaps uh, the fruits of righteousness, right? That's Hebrews. Um, and that you can see that in, I think in this, especially in the restoration, you can see the effect of the exile because later on uh, when he talks about um, the Sabbath, right, Rest, um, restoring the people's uh, observance of the Sabbath, he actually gets very specific and says, didn't you learn anything, right? Th this is why we went into exile. We went into exile for this very reason that we broke the Sabbath again and again and again in so many ways. And so what have we learned from that discipline? Well, we need to observe the Sabbath. So the next major event then, restoration of Feast of Booths, and then what is the significant event that happens? Yeah, so you have the you have the booths and it's accompanied and punctuated, I guess you might say, with the reading of of the law every day. And uh, then you get this big chapter nine where you have a, a prayer. I don't know if it's Nehemiah who's saying this prayer. I, my suspicion is that it's Ezra uh, acting as the priest here, praying on behalf of the people. Um and it's this long confession of their sins, an appeal to God's mercy. And then there's this uh, chapter 10 is a, a covenant, a renewal of the covenant from the, the people's side of it, if you will. Yeah. So let's talk about covenants for a few minutes. What is a covenant? Well, it's a it's an agreement, right? <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, in the, in the purely, in the purely uh, economical sense, yes. It's an agreement between two parties. But what's more significant, especially about biblical covenants and the seriousness of them? Well, uh, to go back to if, if you want to get some of the, the original covenant, um, you can go back to Abraham. I don't, you might want to go back further. I don't, you can fill that in if you want, Willie. But um, if we take Abraham's covenant or the Lord's covenant with Abraham is, is really the better way of saying that. Um, it's, it's the entering into of, um, uh, you, you have to talk about contracts, right? It's binding. It's a binding contract or a binding uh, oath that's entered into. Uh, with Abraham, interestingly, it's it's the Lord who enters into that covenant with Abraham. And only later is Abraham called to also live up to his, um, to fulfill his covenant obligations. Certainly. So we have the Abrahamic covenant, and then very significantly, the Mosaic covenant. So those are the two that most of our, most Christians are generally aware of, even if they don't use those terms. So what are the hallmarks of Abraham's covenant? And then we'll go to the covenant of Moses. So what's the promise? There's always a promise connected to a covenant. So what's the promise given to Abraham? Yeah. So to Abraham, you have the promise of a seed, uh, the promise of uh, the offspring and the promise of the land. Uh, there's, I think, a, a twofold promise there um, with well, and I should say the Lord promises himself, right? I will be your God and I will be your shield and I will be your, your very great reward. Um, so the Lord gives himself in the covenant. And then that obligates Abraham also uh, to, to be blameless before the Lord. This is um, part of that, the, the circum 
the circumcision of Abraham and of his descendants is this their uh, entrance into that covenant that the Lord they will have the Lord as their God and they will also then um, be His holy people. Yes, and then we have the Mosaic covenant, and this is really what I think is being what I believe is being restored here is actually the Mosaic covenant. I think you're right because you have all of the elements here. You know, the feasts are being established, which are not part of the Abrahamic covenant or the Noahic covenant, but they're part of the Mosaic covenant. So that's really what's being restored is the law being restored is building up to this. There's really shorthand for this re-ratification of the Mosaic covenant. But you can't separate the prior covenants from the Mosaic covenant. Abraham especially, you know, extraordinarily significant for the Mosaic covenant. But the Mosaic covenant has all of these specific laws, specific regulations, and promises associated with it. Right. And uh, I think I think you're right to see that the, the Mosaic Covenant looms large here. Um, I think when you when you get that connection between booths and um, the reading of the law that the I think the Feast of Booths was the natural time for the people to to be reminded of um, the Mosaic Covenant in all of its fullness. Um, both from what the Lord promised to do for his people there and also how they were to then live, what their life was um, to be characterized by and to look like. Good, good. So now, what does this mean for us? And I don't mean our application, which is going to come later, but as far as our relationship to covenants, the Mosaic Covenant, you know, what significance does it have as far as salvation history is concerned? And Zelwyn mentioned this, or maybe it was you, David, at the very beginning, that all of this reorientation of Israel, this revival within Israel, is for the sake of the coming Savior. And ultimately, the salvation of the world in the Savior, Jesus Christ. Yes, I think you have to to see um, what is God's purpose in singling out Abraham. If we can, if we go back to Abraham, and then we'll we'll pick up um, Israel and under Moses as we go through here, but he, he singles out Abram. He calls this one particular man, uh, in order to bring his son into the world. Right. And so the, the choosing of Abraham, the election of Abraham, the, the covenant with Abraham all serves this further goal for the Lord of bringing the Christ into the world. And, uh, even then, in it with with Israel as a nation, um, as Abraham's seed grows and multiplies and becomes like the sand on the seashore and the stars in the heavens, well, now this corporate nation is the nation through which um, this one particular son is going to be born, and so that nation has to be um, preserved, right? And so the laws are given in order to preserve the people of Israel as a as a particular nation in order to bring Jesus so that eventually Jesus can be born into the world. Yes, they're a peculiar people and it's about safeguarding them as a unique um, entity within the world, which gets us into some of these contentious issues with Ezra and Nehemiah, the issues of intermarriage. Uh, Intermarriage is a um, dilution. Intermarriage with pagans and other tribes is a dissolution of the tribe of Israel or of the Hebrews. 
Right. And I think that's uh, going back to the wall, um, the building up of the physical wall. And here I, I mentioned this before, the, the renewal of the covenant is this renewal, not of the physical wall, but of the, if you can put it in these terms, a spiritual wall um, that keeps God's people, um, the Jews, separate from the other nations. And, uh, you know, if, if we have trouble with this, if we think, well, you know, that's why do they have to be particular and distinct? Um, well, because the promise is given through particular and distinct, um, this particular and distinct nation, the descendants of Abraham. Um, and you can see, I'm, I'm looking, you know, just to talk about intermarriage here. Um, when he, when, when Nehemiah mentions his final reforms, chapter 13 follows on all of this, um, the reform of the worship in the, um, the Feast of Booths. He, he's going to go into talking about uh, reestablishing some of the other institutions, the priesthood, um, the Levites, and the care for the Levites uh, that needed to be uh, restored. Uh, when he finally gets to addressing intermarriage, he brings up Solomon as this example. And he says, look, we had, there hasn't been a king like Solomon since him. And even he was uh, susceptible to these foreign influences, right? His, and what he means there is his foreign wives and their, the religions that they brought along. Um, so there's, uh, there's this danger of we, if, if Israel and here, if, if the Jews uh, intermarry, um, there's this danger of, and it's a very real danger. Uh, it's you know, it's not just oh, it might happen. It's this is going to happen. We will become just like all the other nations, and then that what was supposed to be distinct will be lost. Right, this distinct chosen people, a peculiar people, um, becomes just like the Canaanites, which in fact happened. Right, that's exactly why the exile happened. Right, and then God must restore them, you know, for the sake of fulfilling His own promises. Even though the Israelites continually break the covenant, God continually restores or forgives them over and over. And we see that certainly echoed in the New Testament community as well. Uh, once, once the gospel goes out into all the world. If I could just throw one thing in there to what David said. Um, I thought it was very well put by uh, one author that I read that when you have this kind of intermarriage, um, people today usually don't think of it as much as like, oh, it doesn't matter. You know, she's one religion. I am a different religion, so it doesn't really matter. Well, the truth of the matter is, is you actually do share a religion, but not the biblical one. Because if you are, are if for the Jews to intermarry in this way actually is saying that they're not taking the covenant seriously. They're not um, abiding in that particularity uh, that God demands of them. And so they're actually showing their unfaithfulness. It's not just a matter of, oh, well, you know, they just happen to get married. Oh, true. Yeah. And, you know, we, we didn't mention the obvious that the law forbids these marriages mm -hmm. quite clearly. Um, there, there is no room for interpretation on that issue. Yeah. The, um, at the very end, uh, and, and you can see how deeply this has set in because even the high priest's family, right. I'm looking at chapter 13, uh, verse 28, one of the sons of Jehoiada, the son of Eliashib, the high priest who was working with Nehemiah in all of this, right. Um, 
was the son-in-law of Sanballat the Horonite, who we mentioned before, right? So these these men who were opposing all of Nehemiah's work, well, somehow their families have intermarried with the high priest's own family. And I think part of the the difficulty that, or part of the opposition Nehemiah has to face is how deeply interwoven the uh, the his enemies' families are with the leaders of the people, right? This this is not just something that, uh, what would we say, the unsuspecting people are doing. It's it's within the leaders of of the people of of Israel. Absolutely. Well, we're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we'll talk about the legacy of Nehemiah, the significance of Nehemiah, and the application today. We'll be right back. We'll be back in just a few moments. A word fitly spoken proclaims Jesus Christ in all His fullness from in-depth exploration of Holy Scripture and study of how God's Word has borne fruit throughout church history. Come along with us at wordfitlyspoken.org, facebook.com slash wordfitly, or on Twitter at wordfitly. Welcome back to the Word Fitly Spoken podcast. We're here with David and Zelwyn talking about Nehemiah. So we've talked about the restoration of the covenant, the fortification of Israel, return of the festivals, those sorts of things. So now what do we do with Nehemiah? Where is Nehemiah's place in the canon? What does it look like? What's its significance? Yeah, I think I think seeing we started talking about the exile here and I think seeing this connected with exile, that uh, the the Old Testament does not end with the people in exile, right? They are, they are returned back to the land. The Lord fulfills His promises. He actually brings His people back, and they they are willing um, servants of the Lord, right? I think that's the the significance of this covenant renewal here in Nehemiah. It comes at the end. On the flip side of exile, you have return, and the people are, in a sense, it's it's almost like they've restarted. I don't want to say that because it's not a, just a return to Sinai, um, but but that gets the point across, I think. Certainly. So what does it do for us? What does it mean for those of us here in the Christian church? We are We have inherited these words of God. What does the law tell us? What's the significance of the story of Nehemiah, the story of the restoration of the law, these festivals, these Sabbaths, these offerings? What do these words say to the Christian listening to them today? I, I think they say a lot about the the response of of God's people to his goodness. And I think you can see that if you just sort of take a uh, zoomed out look at the book of Nehemiah. You have this amazing um, act of the Lord to rebuild the, the walls in what, 52 days they were able to accomplish this. And Nehemiah is quite clear. They were able to do this not because they were so great, but because the good hand of the Lord was upon them. And subsequent to that, the people want to serve the Lord, right? They, they, willingly enter into this covenant. Um, the law of the Lord is their delight. It's their joy. 
And while Christians are certainly not outside the kingdom of God, we are very much exiles as far as our life in the fallen world. So we know a little bit of this, and we can yearn for the goodness of God, yearn for the provision of God, yearn for the day when God will restore his kingdom on earth, um, the new heavens and the new earth, in his second coming, and give all good things to us, to finally tear down all of the idols, to speak his words to us directly. That's the hope of the Christian, and that's the hope that the scriptures gives us, something very similar to what happens here at the Restoration. Yeah, I think the seeing seeing this uh, connected to the church, right? In the church, uh, we have begun to be restored to um, to our heaven, to our our final uh, heavenly calling, and so that that means that part of the Christian's response, the renewal and regeneration of a Christian, leads to a renewal and regeneration of our of our wills, and so we want to gladly serve the Lord and do his, do his bidding. Um, and you can, you can see here the, the, yeah, I think you mentioned the, the very practical ways in which God's law guides his people of old and also, uh, his people in the new Testament, right? The, the same. Right. And let's, before we jump into, before we jump into that though, um, we want to be very clear here about what our hope looks like. We are not looking for a third temple. We're not looking for the restoration of the Feast of Booths. We're not looking for a return to sacrifice because that's already been completed. And it is a very common hope among certain forms of Christianity today, an earthly kingdom. And that's not really what we're looking for. So when we talk about a new heavens and a new earth, we're talking about the recreated paradise after the second coming, after the great judgment, where all things are made new and all things are put right. It's our vindication and the final fulfillment, really, of the covenant promises, of the promises of God that God's made in the new covenant. Yeah, yeah. the Feast of Booths was great, but we have something better. Well, I mean, if if you're being strictly honest, the Feast of Booths' purpose has come to an end in Jesus Christ. And so to, to go back to the Feast of Booths, as if we need to get all of these Old Testament ceremonies going again, would basically be like trying to, well, how does Paul put it, crucify Christ all over again? I mean, or is that too much? <laughs> well, I mean, it's the same issue. And we do see this issue come up a lot today. People who want to bring back or want to maintain uh, Old Testament rituals that have served their purpose, that they have been fulfilled in Christ. And it's a tremendous problem. You don't need to celebrate a Passover Seder. You don't need to keep kosher. Christ has done that. It is done. That age is done. It is finished. The sacrifice has been made. All things are clean. Serve your Lord in gladness and in the freedom that you've been given. And there it is. We, we don't need to go back to the old times. Nevertheless, that doesn't mean that the Old Testament law does not inform us ethically, and it doesn't mean that we're, not, that we're somehow not bound to the commandments, particularly the Ten Commandments, the moral law, because we certainly are. But we don't want to turn this into... We don't want to write a new Talmud. We don't want to do that at all. We don't want to return to these old things. We don't. We certainly don't want to send any money um, to have a temple built. We don't want to look for the red heifer so that we can have ashes to dedicate it. That's not the Christian religion. Yeah, and I and I would say you can even see this in the uh, Old Testament itself, right? So even though I, I would call this a high point for the the Old Testament, 
it's it actually isn't strictly speaking the end of the Old Testament. You still have the prophet Malachi to come after Nehemiah. And what does Malachi say? Uh, the, well, and we have John the Baptist too, right? <laughs> well, okay, fair Sorry, enough, exactly. fair enough. Uh, but it, they're connected, right? We can connect these things. Right. right. Um, I mean, even I think Malachi, the date is what, 420. So this is what, 25 years or so after this great covenant is renewed, uh, Malachi comes and says, what's happened? You're robbing the Lord, right? You're not offering the proper sacrifices. Uh, you're not you're not living up to these things. So even the restoration of the covenant does not finally bring the, you know, peace on earth and, and perfection. Yeah, and that, that perfection, of course, is to be found only in Christ. Um, one thing I was thinking about, as you were mentioning that, even in the Old Testament, um, you had mentioned earlier how the, the Feast of Booze kind of shifted in character from uh, the times of Moses and times of Joshua all the way down to the times of Nehemiah, because you have a, a stronger emphasis still on the reading of the word. Um, so I think you could even say, um, we see even in the Old Testament, uh, the the purpose of these ceremonies of showing themselves. So it's not just, uh, oh, we're just uh, hanging out in tents because God told us to, um, but rather that we do this because we are listening to the word and God is showing us um, the the real purpose of what all of these things are pointing towards. Yes, and there's, there's so much, I mean, just so much here, just so much practical knowledge, you know, the preaching word or the, or the red word that we have here um, and what that means for us to listen attentively to his word. I mean, even the teachings on the Sabbaths uh, and the offerings are significant. There's much for us to mine and to learn there. Yeah. I mean, we mentioned uh, the inner, we, we talked about intermarriage there before, uh, which we can learn from the caution there. Um, but also with, with keeping the Sabbath um, and, and the the giving of first fruits is is mentioned specifically. Those three things are singled out in this covenant: um, the sabbaths, the first fruit offerings, and uh, separation from foreign influences. Um, th- those are highlighted, and I think, yeah, like you said, wh- are we supposed to do these exactly? No, we're not supposed to do them exactly, but they inform how we uh, ought to live in in the New Testament. Yeah, certainly the Sabbath, resting in the Lord. And, and and truly, leisure itself is important to the physical life, the same as it is to the spiritual life. What is the significance of the Sabbath for the Christian? Well, I think it's worth pointing out, you mentioned leisure in connection with the Sabbath, and I think that's the way a lot of people tend to interpret it, like we're just being idle, almost, um, but I, but God's what the Sabbath is actually intended for is to um, turn our focus towards the hearing of the word and uh, all of the things that go along with that, uh, whether that would mean. Um, I, I mean, you can you can fill in here or whatever you want to say. I mean, it's just, you know, we tend to think that if we just do something on on Sunday, for example, that somehow we've we've fulfilled what it means to observe the Sabbath. But I mean, do you guys want to pitch in on this? I mean, where, where do we want to go with this? <laughs> right. Yeah. Is the Sabbath observed, you know, from 1030 to 1137 every Sunday or whatever? <laughs> is, is that what is that the point of it? Yeah. 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 That's kind of what I'm getting at here. So, you know, what is it? Yeah, I think. Go ahead. 
Well, I just, it's good to go back to the small catechism on this, right? Luther, um, I think rightly sees that the fulfillment of the Sabbath or the observance of the Sabbath is the hearing of God's word. And so to hear God's word, but, but I think what you guys have just mentioned there is, is crucial. That hearing is not just the 10 to 15 to 20, um, in Willie's congregation to 25 minutes that the sermon goes on, right? That hearing, that hearing means more than just, Hey, I, I heard the words, right? But there's that further meditation on God's word, the actual consideration of his word, um, and, and the striving to, to apply it to one's own life. Um, that takes a lot more than just to read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest, yeah. right? Yeah. Yeah. That can't be done in, 10 minutes. No, indeed, can it even be done in a lifetime? Yeah. But we point. nevertheless strive for that. And this is something we talked about in our inaugural episode and something that we revisit often on A Word Fitly Spoken is incorporating the Word of God into your life. You know, just sitting down and reading it, praying to the Lord, even praying using the words of Scripture. Because the Bible is, in many places and in many ways, a prayer book teaching us how we ought to talk to God and telling us what God says to us. Yeah. And, and, and hearing that word and, and receiving it very much in the ways that uh, the, uh, the Jews did in Nehemiah's day uh, with that, that awe and that reverence. Um, I think that is a good uh, biblical example for us to imitate and to consider, you know, are we, are we hearing the word in such a way? When we really begin to read and listen to the Word, we see how all other books are stale, how all other forms of media are stale. Every movie, every book, every periodical, everything is stale compared to the Word of God. Yeah, I mean, just just think about just think about this episode, right? I mean, we've how much of Nehemiah have we really covered, right? We could go on, we could go on and on with just just this one book. And so to see the richness, the fullness, and uh, what that means then is that uh, a whole lifetime uh, should be spent and gladly spent um, loving God's word. And that means, I, I like how you guys have said it, is that means actually knowing something of the word. It means reading it, praying it, inwardly digesting all of those things. There's many otherwise practical things here too. Um, the need for the separation from subtle enemies or enemies of the word of God. Should we have fellowship with those who scheme against it and who would seek to undermine its teaching? The obvious answer from Nehemiah is, of course, and from the, from the entirety of Scripture is no. But it's becoming rather difficult for us today with the plethora of denominations, the push towards ecumenism even, and really just the general society. Not, not just ecumenism. It's quaint to think of the days when our controversy was over, do we pray or worship with Methodists? And now it's become... Do we stand with Hindus? Do we stand with pagans and witches and affirm the, a belief in the same God, or at least one of the same gods? And that's what a lot of people hearing this are going to deal with. That's what a lot of our members are going to deal with. Yeah, I think in the New Testament, you have um, obviously the call to not be conformed to the pattern of this world. And so the um, the enemies of, of God's people are uh, sometimes quite obvious. Um, but what what you see here in in Nehemiah is that people like Tobiah the Ammonite and Sanballat the Horonite, uh, these sorts of figures are deeply 
um, connected to us. And, and all, we have these kinds of people in our lives all around us. And you want to give a, uh, you know, a, a good witness to them. But at the same time, when you become, and this is what I think uh, the witness of Nehemiah says for us, is that uh, maintaining the distinctiveness of faithfulness to God's word will sometimes put you in opposition to people who within your own family. So what should a Christian do in such situations? There's a curveball, right? I, <laughs> Cause, cause yeah, when exactly. We answer that, you know, certainly we have to tailor it to individual yeah. situations, but what does a young person do, for example, who finds themselves as the only Christian in the family or the person in a country that's hostile to the gospel? What do they do? Well, even think of think of Nehemiah, right? Nehemiah has he has his opponents and they seem to be in high ranking places, but he also has uh he is not alone. Um he has certainly Ezra is a faithful companion and confidant of Nehemiah, although we're not told that, you know, they held weekly meetings or anything like that. But I think finding uh, your place in a in a congregation where you can actually be connected to a pastor and you can be connected to other faithful Christians. There's there's really no substitute for that, is there? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, certainly, certainly agree with that. And there, even when the relationships fail, there you're still hearing the word of God. You're receiving it. You're really emulating the people in the book of Nehemiah. You're there hearing God's word and the explanation of God's word. And looking forward to that day when Christ will finally uh, crush all of his enemies under his feet. And then we won't have to struggle anymore. And what a day that will be. Right. And that day is coming where Christ's dominion reaches farther and farther. And then he is here. Everything is, is perfect. Well, we are the Lutheran church after all. So perhaps we should talk about um, the reform that comes about through the preaching of the word and men, uh, raised up in the Bible uh, to reform things. What does that look like? Yeah, I think we've we've touched on this in, in a number of different ways. But seeing the the centrality of the word, um, the word read, the word heard, the word explained. I mean, that's part of one of the nice things in Nehemiah. You actually have this uh, description that while Ezra read the law out loud, it was also the sense was also given. Uh, and whether that means they had to explain, you know, grammatically what was being said, or they're giving some sort of homilies based on the on the word, it's kind of left open. It's probably both, uh, you know, maybe it's both of them. Um, but apart from that word, none of this reform would would take place. Uh, maybe you'd get the building up of the walls. Uh, there's no mention of Nehemiah reading. The, the Torah in exile. It probably wasn't. Um, but you do have, once the walls are built, then you have this further reform happening. And it always, always, always uh, is accompanied by and, and guided by and really done by the word. Yes. God raises up these men who bring the focus back to the centrality of the word. There is the heart of true reform. Because there is all good things, there is all good teaching, there's the purity and the clarity that only comes from the Word of God. So we're going to have to wrap this one up. So David, do you have any final words 
for our listeners before we sign off? Yeah, the uh, one one thing we didn't mention, but um, Nehemiah's he had. There's a number of these prayers uh, that are sort of dotted throughout the book, and they almost always t- uh, use this refrain of "remember, remember." And he appeals to the Lord to remember him, um, to remember him for his good. And I think that's the way the book ends, right? Remember me, oh my God, for my good. And I think that's a great way to to close it out. Here is to appeal for the Lord's remembrance of us. Um, as much as we've talked about remembering him here and remembering his, his word, his law, um, we need to be remembered by him. And that's a great prayer to end it on. Amen. This is the Word Fitly Spoken podcast. God love you and God bless you.